0: One of the things that's interesting about this primary is how you judge Trump's performance. If you judge him as being as part of a open seat race where he's not formally the incumbent, he's doing pretty well. I mean, he got over 50 percent in both early contests. But then if you look at him and say, well, he's effectively an incumbent, he's going for his third straight Republican nomination, then actually getting a little over 50 percent maybe isn't that impressive or certainly not compared to what he even did in 2020 as an incumbent. And so I I sort of struggle as to how to think about how well he's doing, because depending on how you approach the question, you could answer a lot differently.
1: Welcome back to Politics is Everything, the podcast of the Center for Politics at the University of Virginia. I'm Kara Ong-Whaley.
0: And I'm Kyle Condick.
1: Kyle, there is so much happening and really just not enough time to cover all of it.
0: One thing is that the you know, the the primary season, I mean, it's not over, but it's it's it sure is getting there.
1: It's getting there, but I want to talk about that and whether or not we should be saying it's over. I'm I'm gonna be a, really fair, unpopular on that. I, I'm gonna be really unpopular in my opinions on that. Well Let's, what are what are
0: what are your opinions on that?
1: From a longer term small D democratic democracy perspective. I am really against declaring the end of the primary season when we've only had two states finish up a caucus or a primary. Um and, and I just I I hear it anecdotally from a lot of people around me saying, oh great, my vote doesn't matter. And I think it just sort of feeds into, you know, the general sense that people have that democracy isn't working right now. I get people want to know what's happening or be the first to predict what the field's going to be. But I think from the perspective of voters and from the perspective of democracy writ large, um, it's it's a bad thing.
0: I definitely see where you're coming from. Um, and, you know, it the, the primaries are odd in the sense that it's this like, you know, it's held over the course of, what, five months or whatever from, you know, January to to. Uh, the end of May or early, early June. Um, and, you know, you, you, on one hand, you have a bunch of contests remaining. On the other hand, you have, you know, evidence that, you know, that Trump and Biden are basically, you know, in, in, in really good shape. Um, and, you know, particularly for us, like for the, like the crystal ball, I guess, like we're, you know, kind of specifically in the sort of, um, I don't know, like looking ahead or forecasting business. And so, we feel obligated, I think, to to offer our opinion on that, even though I could also see totally see where you're coming from in that um, it, it, it does feel, I think, kind of odd to people like, oh, this thing is just starting. How could it be basically over? So it's I, I think I think it's a tricky uh, it's a tricky problem in, in terms of how you talk.
1: You were one of the lucky ones to cover returns at CBS this week. And did a fantastic analysis for the crystal ball about who turned out and and what it may mean. And, and so I want to ask you about that. but just related to our discussion about predictions and um, and what effects it might have on the electorate, looking at the exit polls, um, it really struck me how few young people, at least based on what we know from the exit polls, how few young people um, turned out to vote. like it's it's not even enough to determine, um, statistically speaking, how many young people voted for um, either Nikki Haley or Donald Trump. Um, and so I'm just using that to back my point that, you know, if we want to grow voters, if we want people to um, think that their vote matters, it's, it's important to encourage voting um, in the primaries. And it's hard to do that when we say, oh, it's over. <laughs> the oldest set.
0: If you do look at the exit polls, it's sort of I don't think the evidence is particularly clear, but you know Trump did a little bit better in New Hampshire among young people. Um, uh, you know Biden's problems are uh, are are you know th- th- they're concentrated among young people. And I think you saw that probably more in the 2020 primary where you had you know it was a it was an open seat contest and there was uh, more comp- more competition. But you know part of it is I think that maybe the the choices are not necessarily appealing. Although in any sort of lower turnout environment and and everything is lower turnout compared to a, you know, to a, a presidential general election, um, you're just going to see young people making up a smaller portion of the electorate. And I, I agree with you. I agree with you. That's unfortunate. Um, and you know, I think it just speaks to some of the, some of the turnout challenges we have in uh, American politics again, because, um, you know, older folks just turn out more and, you know, there are a variety of different reasons for that, but you, you'd kind of wish for participation to be uh, higher across the board,
1: Well, let's talk a little bit more about your fantastic analysis about New Hampshire. Um, we do know there was record high turnout in the primary in New Hampshire, which is uh, you know, one of the first contrasts to the historic low turnout in the Iowa caucus and turnout in Iowa may have been due to multiple factors, including that it's a caucus and not a primary, and also the record low temperatures there. But what do we know about who turned out in New Hampshire and what that might mean? moving forward.
0: But New Hampshire is a um, in terms of on the Republican side, uh, uh, you know, it's a more moderate electorate than you'll generally see um, in many of the other Republican primaries. It was it was roughly like one third moderate slash liberal, according to the uh, exit poll. um, And then it was two thirds conservative. And, you know, Nikki Haley's problem was that she did very well amongst the 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 moderate group. um, But, you know, Donald Trump got 70 percent of the two thirds the electorate that called itself conservative. And as you look ahead, um, you know, to most of the, you know, the, the upcoming contests, including South Carolina, and then also some of the super Tuesday states, you know, the, 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 the share of voters who call themselves moderate is probably going to be more around like 20% or one out of five, as opposed to one out of three, which it was in, um, in, in New Hampshire. And so, you know, I guess that's part of the, the impetus for Why people, you know, don't see Haley as having much of a chance to beat Trump is that um, this was a state that was pretty well suited to her electorate and she still, you know, finished 11 points behind.
1: So one of the things that struck me in looking at a couple of different exit polls from New Hampshire was that Trump did very well among people who had made their decision to vote a month ago or even further back. And Haley did much better uh, and won the majority of votes for people who had just recently made a decision about how to vote. I wonder if you had any thoughts on on that. Um I, to me, it seems it's probably indicative of more independents and moderates getting in and deciding to vote in New Hampshire. But do you have any any thoughts on yeah, that? Yeah, so
0: yeah, yeah, I've got the specific numbers right on my screen here. so, um, 60% said they decided, uh, prior to last month and, and Trump won that group 70 to 28 in the exit poll. And then, um, of the, you know, 60%, or I'm sorry, 40% combined who, who, uh, who, who made their decision, you know, within the last month or region more recently than that, you know, Haley does much better. Part of it was probably that, you know, there were lots of people who knew they weren't going to vote for Trump, but maybe they didn't know who their option was going to be. And, and the, the roster of candidates actually you know, it's changed over the course of the last few weeks. You know, you had Ron DeSantis drop out. You had Chris Christie, who for a time was getting you know, double digits in New Hampshire, he dropped out too, and so it kind of, I think, just funneled a lot of those those voters to um, uh, to Haley. You know, she didn't win all the late deciders, but uh, it looks like combined, she got you know roughly like two thirds of of those uh, um, of of those of those late deciding um, uh, voters. But again. You know, you did have about 60 percent of the electorate that that says they were basically locked in. And, um, you know, Trump did quite well amongst that uh, group. You know, one one thing and I I'm, I'm stealing this from someone on Twitter and I can't remember off the top of my head who it was. So I apologize. But, you know, one of the things that's interesting about this primary is like how you judge Trump's performance. If you judge him as being as part of a open seat race where he's not formally the incumbent, he's doing pretty well. I mean, he got over 50% in both early contests. But then if you look at him and say, well, he's effectively an incumbent, he's going for his third straight Republican nomination, then actually getting a little over 50% maybe isn't that impressive or certainly not compared to what he even did in 2020 as an incumbent. And so I, I sort of struggle as to how to think about how well he's doing, because depending on how you approach the question, you could answer a lot differently. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that?
1: I think that's that's a right analysis, actually, to think of him more as an incumbent. You know, his, the name recognition is there, and, and that actually could potentially have negatives, right, especially if we think about the baggage that comes with it. But if we think from the sense of how many people are tuning in, or the fact that they're getting information from completely different sources, um, and, and in a particular information ecosystem, you know, it's, it seems to sort of benefit him. Looking at the exit polls for New Hampshire, for example, like the majority of people who voted for Donald Trump, um, at least according to exit polls, think that Joe Biden did not win the 2020 election. So his supporters are living in a different information ecosystem, and the name recognition probably helps him for, for a lot of voters, where if you look at Haley, those who are voting for Haley primarily are just voting against other GOP
0: candidates.
1: Namely, Trump in this case.
0: Trump has run kind of a defensive campaign too. In that, you know, he did not engage in the debates. Um, you know, he was he basically ran as someone who had a lead and w- is protecting it. And I, I think that's been um, uh, relatively successful. Although, you know, again, there's a, the choice the choice of a campaign, which was logical to you know not participate in the debates and all that. Um, you know, is that actually good for the electorate? You know, probably not. But again, I sort of understand where they're coming from.
1: I would say another data point that we could be looking at, this came up in in Iowa especially, and we can look at moving forward, is questions that focus on how people will feel given the outcome of the criminal charges against Trump and whether or not he would be, quote unquote, fit for office. If he is convicted of those charges, how that might impact people's um, sense of him. So, Kyle, technically, the next primary is the Virgin Islands, and they're going to use ranked-choice voting there to decide. But more more broadly speaking, the next primary will be in South Carolina, which is Nikki Haley's home state. What are you thinking about as we move into South Carolina and then on to Super Tuesday?
0: It's also worth noting Nevada, too, although I'm, I think most people are ignoring Nevada because Haley and Trump are actually not on the same ballot. There's like a primary... That is a state-run primary that's going to be the Democratic process or the Democratic Party process, but not the Republican one. Haley's on the ballot there. Trump isn't. It doesn't award, award any delegates. Um, and then the, two days later, there's a, a caucus in Nevada where Haley's not on the ballot, but Trump is. So Trump should win basically all the delegates, as I, as I understand it, because I think the others on the ballot are uh, candidates who have, who have dropped out. But yeah, everyone's looking ahead to South Carolina. There's a big month-long gap between New Hampshire and South Carolina. Um, we haven't had any recent polling there uh, uh, really of, of since January 1st I think Emerson's the only um uh, the only kind of nonpartisan poll there that the trump Trump's uh, um, allies of Trump have put out some polls there showing him doing well there the Emerson poll show Trump doing well there too you know my guess is is that when we start getting nonpartisan polling of South Carolina that Trump is gonna be doing pretty well because uh, the electorate there is is kind of less, mo- less moderate, more religious than New Hampshire. It's kind of more like Iowa in that way. And then this is where Haley is going to have to make a decision. You know, does she forge ahead um, and try to dramatically change the numbers in South Carolina over the next several weeks? Uh, or does she maybe rethink being in the race altogether because no one wants to lose their home state and potentially lose it by a lot. And that's what Haley could potentially be looking at. Again, assuming the polls shake out the way that I think they probably will, maybe we get some surprise when we start getting the numbers, but but I think that's a reasonable expectation.
1: So one of the things I've been thinking about is that it still makes sense for her to stay in at least past Super Tuesday, especially because we don't know what is going to happen in the criminal trials against Donald Trump. Do you think that makes sense for her in the campaign?
0: If she has the resources and the willingness to do it, that's that's totally within her right to, to, to stay in. And, you know, maybe she could, uh, there are a handful of, uh, or a couple of States like Massachusetts and Vermont coming up on super Tuesday that have electorates that are kind of similar to New Hampshire. And you know, it's, it's, I don't think it's inconceivable that she could win one of those States. And then, you know, you're, you're sort of staying in the race to essentially be the fallback candidate. Although if Trump were somehow forced from the race, um, you know, Trump still would have accumulated a lot of delegates in the early on in the process. And so maybe if you have like a contested convention or something, you know, maybe those candidates w- or those delegates would want to go to someone who wasn't Haley um, because there's, you know, there, there's clearly a movement within the party to try to push her out. You get to a certain point in the process and like if the voters are affirming these candidates, it's really then up to those candidates themselves as to whether they drop out or not, really not up to anyone else. Uh, you know, we're going to get to mid-March where both the Republicans and the Democrats will have allocated, um, you know, a majority of their delegates. Um, the the Democratic side is is proportional, although you know Biden's op- opponents may not be able to even hit the fifteen percent threshold in um, in these various states. If New Hampshire had awarded delegates, Dean Phillips would have crossed that, but New Hampshire was you know was not is not awarding delegates uh, based on that primary. And you know Biden got mid sixties there as a as a write-in, and part of the appeal for Haley maybe is hey she could be the fallback candidate if something happens to Trump, but the the bad blood she might be generating with the within the party might prompt the party to sort of look elsewhere if in fact Trump doesn't make it to the convention for reasons outside of the actual primary process.
1: We're going to switch gears a little bit and talk about another new analysis out on the crystal ball. Um, This week, Louisiana Governor Jeff Landry signed a bill into law that creates a new congressional map featuring two majority black districts. This ends a nearly two-year saga over adequate black representation in the state and the crystal ball house ratings have been changed from safe republican to safe democratic for louisiana six i wonder if you can talk a little bit um about what happened with the redistricting process there and whether or not this change in louisiana and perhaps some other states could impact what you're thinking about in terms of a majority in the house of representatives
0: what happened in louisiana kind of springs from the allen versus milligan decision which essentially upheld section two of the Voting Rights Act, as we understand it, which basically kind of forces the creation of majority minority districts in places where such districts can't be drawn. And so Alabama was the example there. Alabama now has a second black majority or close to black majority seat. I think it's right around 50 percent. But that district is likely to elect a a Democrat. And then Louisiana had similar uh, um, had, had, had a similar case going on and uh, based on Allen versus Milligan, uh, court ordered Louisiana to to draw a new district. And what ended up happening was that um, Louisiana Republicans decided to draw, frankly, like a fairly ugly, just visually uh, racial gerrymander that goes basically from like Baton Rouge all the way up to Shreveport. And there have been certain other iterations of that kind of district in the past that actually have been struck down because they're kind of so obvious and egregiously a racial gerrymander there, there was a way you could have drawn the district to essentially be to still be black majority and also frankly to be more a little more competitive um that that would have satisfied the lawsuit but what ended up happening is that you know jeff landry basically wanted to go after garrett graves as the the guy the republican who would be on the on the outside looking in um when the new map came down as opposed to uh julia letlow who's another member who um uh, replaced her deceased hu- husband in the house a couple, couple years ago. Um so uh they they drew the district in this this particular way. Um it looks like a, a state senator Cleo Fields who held a racially gerrymandered uh Louisiana district uh 3 decades ago in the 90s. Um he, this may be his return ticket to the house after a very long uh, uh uh absence from the the US House. Um curious to see if the district maybe gets uh, if there's some sort of legal action there, maybe Graves decides to, uh, see if he can get it unwound as a way to try to, you know, save himself. Uh, but for the time being, retreating, this map is done for 2024. And as you mentioned, it goes from safe Republican all the way to safe democratic. The kind of redistricting scorecard right now is that Republicans in North Carolina drew a new gerrymander that should get them at least three new seats, maybe four. And Democrats benefited from a new map in Alabama that should get them an extra seat and a new map in Louisiana that should get them a new seat. So you could look at it now and say, well, Republicans are up a seat in redistricting based on North Carolina. Um, but we still have a New York State outstanding where Democrats are hoping that eventually they end up getting a better map than the one that's currently in place. Uh, and so it may be that in the you know 2023-2024 redistricting scorecard, maybe Democrats eventually come up ahead. But uh, come out ahead, but Republicans are slightly ahead now based on the changes we've seen so far. Georgia also has a new map, but it doesn't change the uh, um, the partis the expected partisan makeup of that state.
1: So not only is politics everything, it's also very petty.
0: Yes, I mean it is interesting that Republicans in Louisiana could have drawn a map that probably would vote Democratic, but like maybe they could have won it under the right circumstances, but they just decided to to do this instead and. You know, I I remember when I was in college, like when I was first learning about like district drawing and gerrymandering and whatnot, um, one of the most, one of the districts that sort of stood out as being the most like crazily drawn or just like looking, you know, very strange when, if you don't know anything about this stuff, was in fact that one of those 1990s Louisiana maps, which basically went from Shreveport to Baton Rouge, but it sort of made a Z across the, the border of the state, you know, along the Louisiana Arkansas border. Um, kind of down the down the Mississippi River and then going to Baton Rouge, and uh, you know part of the history here is that the Justice Department in the early 1990s, and this was the George H. W. Bush uh, Justice Department, pushed a lot of Southern states to to I- increase the number of of uh, um, majority minority districts. In, in in most cases, in the case of the South, those would be majority black districts, which would have the effect of both increasing black representation, but also making surrounding districts whiter and therefore more conservative. And that led to some districts that eventually were later in the decade, uh, unwound by, um, by a series of court decisions because they basically went too far. And so that, you know, part of it was that the, the creation of these districts, they need to be at least somewhat compact. Um, and like, so, th- so there was a district in North Carolina, um, that was heavily litigated. That was also kind of a, you know, it sort of zig- 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 zigzagged across the state uh, and, uh, you know, basically like sometimes the boundaries were like a highway as wide as a highway in order to connect these sort of disparate black voting blocks. And the courts haven't, you know, they, they, they kind of haven't liked districts like that. And so that does lead to some question about what ultimately happens in Louisiana. But um, it's also helps illustrate why I think this like Voting Rights Act jurisprudence can be so confusing In that it's like sometimes the courts will force the drawing of majority minority districts, but they also can't be drawn in such an egregious way that they, you know, they're they're kind of squiggly lines across a state. So um, I think for, for, you know, even I, as someone who like try to pay as much attention to this stuff as possible. Um, I still find it to be uh, kind of difficult, and there's always kind of new boundaries and, and new judicial new decisions. And frankly, this Louisiana map could eventually lead to some new jurisprudence too. But again, for the time being, we're, we're counting, this is the, what the map's going to be going forward.
1: Well, Kyle, thank you so much, as always, for your incredible insights and analysis. Thanks, Kara. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Politics is Everything. Editing and production was done by me, Kara ong Whitley. You can learn more about the Center for Politics and its work to strengthen democracy on our website at centerforpolitics.org. You can also engage with us on social media at Center Number 4 Politics. We welcome your suggestions and questions for future episodes. Thanks so much for tuning in. Until next time. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group,